Welcome to the latest edition of the MindGut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about the latest ideas from thought leaders in the area of health, food, the science of mind-body interactions, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to speak to Carrie Wangen, a psychiatrist with longstanding clinical experience in working with trauma patients in the veterans' healthcare system, including patients with brain-gut disorders, who has integrated a wide range of approaches to patients with brain disorders, including biological, pharmaceutical, and spiritual dimensions. Dr. Wangen has been an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the departments of psychiatry, UC Irvine and UC Riverside since 2012, and has been certified in psychedelic-assisted therapy and research by the California Institute for Integral Studies in 2022. Dr. Wangen has been in private practice since 2022, providing mindfulness psychiatry via telehealth serving California. Welcome to the show, Kerry. There's a lot of things we have talked about in the past informally, so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to really ask you some, some specific questions that have come out of our you know, ongoing interactions and collaborations. Uh, one thing that, that has struck me you know, the most from the beginning is how sort of your own career path was interlinked with with personal experience about health, um, and um, and 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 how you have been able to integrate this in a in a beautiful way, incorporating private practice with your patients, um, but also incorporating into your own um, you know into your own practice and taking care of your own mental and physical health. So do you, you want to expand a little bit on that um, on 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 that point? Sure, and thank you, Emran, for inviting me to have a, a more formal talk. I know we've we've had a lot of offline talks, so this is this is a great opportunity. Um, yeah, so you know, before my medical training, I completed a PhD in nutritional biochemistry, and we were doing clinical trials feeding soy isoflavones to people, and I really got a just dove in and had this experience of having to work with people about changing their diet and monitoring symptoms and collecting samples. And I really saw how hard it is for people to make changes. And I carried that forward when I went into medical school. And my plan was actually to produce, pursue the gastroenterology track. So, and that was mostly because of my own gut issues I had been having. So um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I found a GI mentor to shadow and I asked so many questions because I was like, why do all these GI patients, why is there so much depression and anxiety and addiction? And he just would kind of look at me and he's like, I don't know, we don't think about that kind of thing. So he's like, have you ever thought of psychiatry? And I really hadn't, but I started to get really curious because it it was very clear that there was things going on at the gut level that were creating psychological symptoms for people. And I wondered if the reverse was true because I wasn't shadowing a psychiatrist yet. So I started to explore psychiatry a little bit more and then um, really did discover during medical school, I'm like, wait, the psych patients have a lot of GI issues. So when it came time for my residency and fellowship in psychiatry, I was even more clear that 
many, many patients were reporting problems with gut issues um, in addition to their depression and anxiety and other symptoms. And this was just fascinating to me. Uh, when I would go and look into the literature, it's like I really couldn't find anyone talking about the interface in a really scientific way and you know, just couldn't find the information to work on that in a clinical way either, other than referring someone to to gastroenterology, but then what I got back was mostly just here's their meds and this is what the procedure results look like. So it's pretty unsatisfying. And, you know, as you and I have talked about, it's like, wow, why didn't we meet each other earlier? <laughs> Would have been a great collaboration from the beginning. Yeah. And I find it really intriguing that, you know, our career paths and um, directions, how we've entered this field um, are, are sort of mirror images of each other because, I mean, I, I came from the gastroenterology side and was unsatisfied with the um, total neglect of, of psychiatric and psychological aspects in, in my specialty, particularly at the time, it's gotten a little bit better. Um, but <clears throat> so I, I find it really interesting that, you know, we came from the opposite ends and converged on, on an area it, you know, that some people are now referring to as nutritional psychiatry in some ways or, or some. I, I think that's a great term. And I know Dr. Drew Ramsey, I think, is the one that first coined that term. Um, I've followed his work and I, I do. I think that, you know, that's one of the problems with how medicine is set up is that it's partitioned into specialties and there there isn't a a specialty that steps back and looks at the whole person and the interplay between those parts. And so a lot kind of goes untreated in a sense, you know, there's pieces that aren't quite in either specialty that don't get addressed. And I think the patients don't get the support that they really want. You know, they're one person with one set of symptoms and they're partitioned out <laughs> into, into other areas. Um, you know, that was one thing I did like about the work at the VA um, when I started as a staff psychiatrist in the PTSD program is there was so much interaction between PTSD and GI symptoms of you know heartburn and cyclic vomiting and IBS and I was able to have a closer relationship with the GI clinic there because the VA is so integrated so I sent tons of people to the GI clinic and was able to email with the GI docs about, you know, hey, this is what I'm noticing. And, and it worked really well in that system that's a little bit more enclosed. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if I may ask you sort of a personal question, we didn't really talk about this, you know, what's, what's off limit here in terms of our, our conversation. Uh, yeah. So you had also some, in addition to these interesting experiences with patients and in the clinic from early on, you also had something going on with your own health that sort of pointed in a direction of, of these of brain-gut interactions the way we understand it today. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I had a lot of gut issues as a child. I got sick a lot with flu and colds and had allergies and skin rashes, um, but there were GI issues in, in my family on both sides. So people just used home remedies and over-the-counter stuff and never really had testing. And, you know, I, I can't even imagine how many boxes of Pepto-Bismol tablets I chewed during elementary school and, and middle school. But by high school, the worsening health issues were including some endocrine problems, immune dysfunction. I was getting a lot of infections. 
and the GI issues were pretty much constant, but the thing that appeared in high school was anxiety and depression with it. And I don't think doctors or teachers or my parents really understood what was going on. So, you know, there were all these symptoms and now I was feeling depression and anxiety and I didn't really know how to describe what it was. I mean, it's not easy to describe like, oh, I'm anxious when one doesn't know the word. And so, you know, I started therapy in high school and eventually was seen by a psychiatrist my senior year. And he really got interested actually in the mind body issues and felt like somehow they were correlated. He couldn't name it, wasn't really sure what to do with it, but, um, you know, connected the stress and the worry with, with the health issues. And so I learned meditation at that time. I was about 16 when a therapist first taught me how to do meditation. And I think, you know, looking back, it's funny. I was a psychiatrist and done with my training before I had the aha moment that it's like, oh, that's where the seed got planted to be a psychiatrist and the whole mind gut connection. Uh, because it was, it was really significant at that age. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and if I remember correctly, I mean, you you were actually you got a firm diagnosis um, about your 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 gut issues. I mean, so I'm really dwelling on this because <clears throat> no, it, it's important. You're right. Yeah, because I'm dwelling on this because I see it so many times. I mean, this this gray zone that you know parents come with their with their teenage uh, kids to the to the clinic or talk about their um, you know, their, their, their infants. And mm -hmm. it seems that um, the early beginning of these brain-gut interactions that can manifest in different ways. They can manifest as, you know, panic attacks, anxiety, um, but they can also manifest with severe constipation or diarrhea or sensitivities. So mm -hmm. it's, it seems to be, from what I've seen, a, a spectrum of possibilities, how a patient gets into the field of that as an adult and have a have a brain gut disorder, either what we call or have been calling of a functional origin, so without a tissue diagnosis, mm -hmm. uh, or you know, with a tissue diagnosis, uh, such as some kind of inflammatory bowel disease. And I, I think and that's your, kind of your story. Oh, sorry. Was, yeah. Your yeah. story sort of goes really illustrates that 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 point very clearly. Yeah, I think the way that it finally got figured out is when I was in graduate school, the symptoms all got more pronounced and I saw an allergy and immunology specialist and right away he's like, we need to do some allergy testing. He said, I think there's clearly something you're ingesting that is, is causing some of this. And I tested positive for an allergy to gluten. So went to a GI doc and had just a series of endoscopies um, over three years. And at one point they said it's Crohn's disease and I was treated with medication for a year and that didn't really do much. And so what ended up happening, the allergy doc was like, hey, why don't you just stay off gluten? Let's have you shift to a whole foods diet and just be really meticulous and see what happens. And that made a huge difference in both mind, you know, my brain function got so clear. I was happier, I was calm and I was in graduate school, which most people aren't that happy when they're working that hard. And um, so it was funny, you know, along the way, I always had GI docs and, and it, they said, 
various things. And then I, when I came to Long Beach and was working at the VA, I saw a GI doc in 2012 and he looked at me and he's like, I'm 99% sure you have celiac disease and I'm going to find it. And so he did a capsule camera study. He asked me to eat gluten for two days and did a capsule camera study. And he said, hundred percent, like it was the damage that they could see with just two days of gluten eating was clear enough to make the diagnosis. So you know, that really helped me to finally have a label to put on it and to know that I needed to be strict with, with the gluten. And it makes such a big difference in, in how I feel in day-to-day -day life. Um, so, you know, to me, I, that just, I was sold after, after seeing my own experience. And it's like, this really does matter to people. And so if my story helps somebody to be more vigilant about taking care of themselves, it's, it's absolutely worth talking about. It's a very important story, you know, in in in, in several aspects. That you know, this this presentation, both in in the in the psychological domain and in, in the gastrointestinal domain, and then coming up with the correct diagnosis, not because mm -hmm. there's obviously several inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Sometimes, in some patients, they may present um, not with the classical GI symptoms. Um, and then there's also this entity of, of non-celiac gluten sensitivity that, mm -hmm. you know, in my opinion, a pretty strong personal opinion has been, um, a lot of patients have been mislabeled with that diagnosis. Um, and it's still hard to actually pin down what the biological basis is. Whereas celiac disease, obviously we know exactly, you know, what the biological mechanisms are mm -hmm. and that it will respond to the elimination of, of gluten from, from your diet. So I, I think your, your, your history really illustrates several really important points. I think that a lot of patients um, might recognize themselves in. Yeah, part of the, the other piece when the diagnosis didn't become positive on me, they did do a cheek swab and I had both copies of the gene associated with celiac and turned out my dad had it, my sister had it, and they both went on gluten-free diets and all their GI stuff cleared up too. And so I was like, yeah, don't worry about getting scoped. Let's just try it and see what happens. Neither of them were excited about having endoscopy procedures. And so my dad lived uh, gluten-free until he passed away and my sister has stayed very rigidly gluten-free. And so it really that was the probably, you know, is obviously on both sides of the family since I had both copies. So, you know, what an interesting thing to think of how much of my family suffered and didn't know. And there was anxiety on both sides of the family too. So it's curious if it was related. Yeah. Um, um, so this is one, I mean, we're going to come to another sort of really intriguing aspects of how your personal experience, you know, with um, meditation and and relaxation um, techniques, how how that has influenced your your career path as well. And um, but I first want to go to this. So you you practiced for uh, are you active in the VA for ten years for for, uh, for ten years, and I would say having worked in the VA myself at at some point of my career, you have seen a very unique population. I mean, how would you as a psychiatrist with a with a brain gut um, uh, particular brain gut interest, how would you describe the the kind of patients that you saw in in at, at the VA? 
I was in the PTSD program, so specialized in that area. And when I started asking, when I first got there about GI issues, it was 100% of the people that I was seeing. I mean, these were people with a lot of stress chemicals going through their bodies in a state of a lot of stress, depression, anxiety, um, a lot of sleep problems. But I was really stunned that it was literally 100% with heartburn or ulcers or cyclic vomiting, diarrhea, appetite issues, IBS at higher rates, IBD at higher rates than would be expected. And I had the great fortune of being able to do a weekly meditation group for the veterans in our program. And I'd always do a couple minutes of teaching about a health topic. And I introduced mindful eating. I would usually do it right before the holiday season. And then again, sometime in the spring. And so many of them came back and said it's made a major difference in their heartburn by learning to calm themselves and let their nervous system switch over to digestive mode. And I definitely noticed um, from what they were telling me that when their PTSD symptoms got worse, their gut stuff got worse. There was a direct link. It's like stress and anxiety goes up, sleeplessness goes up, digestive symptoms go up. I think the part that shocked me the most, though, is how many of the young men and women that served in Iraq and Afghanistan when I did intakes with them, wouldn't say anything about their gut issues. And when I would ask, they're like, oh yeah, I, you know, I throw up probably four or five mornings a week. I've just learned I can't eat until noon. And I'm like, what's that about? Mm -hmm. And, you know, referrals to the GI just yielded this cyclic vomiting title. Um, but it was so, it was so pronounced and otherwise fairly healthy individuals. They had heartburn as well, but yeah, it was just, you know, unbelievable to me what, how many physical problems they would walk around with. And, you know, no wonder a lot of the symptoms of depression and anxiety and some social withdrawal. So yeah, it was really um, deep heartfelt work for me to do. And I, I, I imagine from what you said, the so the patients were actually quite receptive to, I mean, did you introduce them to the concept of the, the close bi-directional brain-gut interactions and were they, and you know, that meditative or contemplative techniques would be beneficial. Were they open to that suggestion? They, they were um, because they, they already knew there was a connection. Like on some level, they, they could feel it and they could see PTSD symptoms and gut symptoms traveling together in peaks and valleys. And I still remember the first meditation group that I decided to introduce the topic. I was like, does anyone in here have heartburn? And like every hand in the room went up and it was like all ages or like 25 people. And I was like, okay, then, you know, I've got, I've got a, a willing audience to uh, participate in this mindful eating exercise. Um, yeah. So um, other than PTSD, I mean, there, what would would you say within the VA population that's kind of the main um, psychiatric issue that that you have encountered? Um, there's a lot of depression, anxiety, and addiction, psychosis, and I I worked some in the substance use program as well, um, but I was primarily PTSD. Okay, so. I mentioned that earlier. So you have this unique um, interest and extensive experience. Um, um, 
in your in in your approach, unique approach, holistic approach to um, to psychiatric disorders. Did you um, was that kind of based on your own personal experiences that many of these techniques have helped you in your own um, you know struggle to to find balance or or to to reestablish balance in in, in you know your mind gut interactions or health in general yeah that's a great question it did start that way because i was first taught meditation techniques by a therapist when i was 16. Um, i just listened to guided exercises and you know i did that in high school not so much in college but when i got to grad school and you know stress increased i decided to start looking for a meditation center and i was reading books about meditation and added the topic of spirituality because of the overlap obviously and started going to yoga classes and uh it was around the time i was finishing up my phd and i knew i was going to roll right into medical school that i thought i'm going to need more stress reduction tools for sure as i enter medical school and so i started attending a zen center locally and that's when i made a commitment to a daily meditation practice which i've continued for 22 years i mean it's rare that i miss a day even if i'm flying on a plane it's like you know worst case scenario i do i do a sit while i'm on the plane uh, because it really, you know, the meditation was such an important piece of my own physical well-being. But as I got into psychiatry and seeing that interface between, uh, you know, what we're doing in our mind and spiritual practice and the physical body, it really did turn into more mind, body, and spirit at that point. And I chose actually to come to University of California, Irvine for my psychiatry residency because of uh, one of the staff members, Dr. Roger Walsh. He's a psychiatrist, author, speaker, and teacher of meditation. And I had heard that he hosted an evening meditation group for the psychiatry residents. And I was able to participate in that for, it was about 15 years. And it was amazing. We, we discussed all different types of growth practices, meditation techniques, and we also talked about how do we bring these practices into our patient care. We started to offer um, guided practices to the patients that were both in the psych units and on the medical floors where we did consults. That was really rewarding and continued to just discuss this mind, body, spirit and how it relates to illness and healing. So it was really a life-changing part of my education. Yeah, that's really, um, I, I, you know, I would almost say you could call yourself a, a, a wounded healer, which is often sort of a, um, you know, term used for, for some of the most effective um, people in, in working in therapy and helping others that you've had experiences, you've had, uh, you've learned to appreciate some of these techniques that have helped you and, and, and you apply it in a very effective and convincing way to your to your patients yeah that i i accept that title i mean it it fits for me when i think about it because if i had not had the health problems i don't think i'd be the person that i am i wouldn't be the psychiatrist that i am it it i had one very big year in the the training in 2007 where uh I just became a little disillusioned with what I was learning in the psychiatry residency program. So I stepped away for a year and 
Dr. Walsh and I put our heads together and I designed a year-long mind-body fellowship. And I did about six months of the year in silent retreats and then a lot of studying with teachers and healers from different traditions. And it was also an opportunity for me to learn more about my body. My, my symptoms had definitely gotten a little worse under the stress of the first two years of psychiatry because I didn't feel like the medications alone were really making the difference for people that I wanted. So stepping away was just transformative. I mean, it was that was probably the most important year of all of my training. And it wasn't in the academic setting. It was actually the year I stepped out with his mentorship and, and did you know, a lot of long silent retreat. And that helped me get in touch with you know, the real healing capacity that we all have. Yeah, that is remarkable that, you know, I mean, particularly, I would say in, in, in psychiatry where um, a common interaction between patient and, and uh, physician is really just the, the dispensing psychoactive medications and, you know, a very brief encounter um, mm -hmm. and then monitoring potentially the side effects of the medication, but not, not that sort of deep connection that you're talking about. And uh, you know, a, a holistic spiritual link with, with the patient and their, and the context they're in and, and, and the situation that they're in. It was really interesting twice in long retreats. I actually intentionally ate gluten because it was, you know, part of the menu and decided I was just going to really monitor myself with the meditative practice and the experience and to watch, you know, within an hour of eating it, like my mind got foggy and I remember just the sensation in my belly and I was imagining it was like I had swallowed a bunch of razor blades or something. I could feel like this burning and cutting awful sensation. And then to watch that it was, you know, about 36 hours to really clear the mental fog that came in from, you know, one small serving of a, a gluten containing product under the mindful conditions of a silent retreat. <laughs> That's really amazing, amazing story. Um, yeah, so we talked a little bit about this, but you know, expanding on um, this situation right now, there's a growing popularity, obviously, of contemplative practices and Buddhist principles in form of different forms of meditation, empathy, compassion uh, in 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 patient care and. I've had a little bit of insight in this, um, having attended a couple of meetings of the Samueli um, uh, Institute um, in Alexandria, or military, and um, I forgot, you know, if it was the military or, or, or veterans organizations came in, and it was amazing to me how they embraced some of the earliest in the medical system, how they embraced those kind of concepts and aspects of, of of um, you know these non non medical uh, uh, principles, and you talked a little bit about how you are have been able to integrate those into your own um, into your own practice. Um, so you've done this successfully with with your um, veteran patients, but now you you actually are in. Uh, in, in, in your own practice and uh, um, how do you continue this? So it, it's, a, um, it's, it's a virtual office that, that, that you're running. How can you continue some of those practices um, 
online and 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 how effective is that you know you're you're pointing at a really important part of my transition out of the va i so appreciate that the va did integrate and they're really supportive of of using mindfulness practices and relaxation and mantra repetition um, but part of it was that wasn't the mainstay of what I could do with patients. I had a lot of other requirements, you know, VA related, and it just came to a point that it's like mindfulness and different meditation diet are so important in my view of helping people heal that that's what caused me this year to step away and say, I want to start doing private practice instead. And so so far in the practice, I mean, I love it because it's a much bigger piece of how I'm working with people, um, both mindful awareness practices to help them learn about themselves and what's going on in their body and mind and to start to see some connections. Also teaching meditation skills. Um, I use compassion practices and helping them get in contact with that inner critic voice and learning how to nurture themselves instead of having, you know, getting angry at the critic. It's like to be able to use a compassion practice to soften that. And then also, you know, more time to work on behavioral change strategies to help them adopt a diet. It's not easy to make nutritional changes at all. And so if I'm really going to be able to help people and support them on the mind gut level, I, I needed more time, space and freedom to be able to use the tools that I felt like were most effective. And it's, um, it's such a joy. I really, I'm really having a lot of fun. I, I've a couple of times thought like I should have done this earlier, but <laughs> that wasn't, that wasn't the path. And I don't regret the 10 years at the VA at all. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. This is really wonderful to hear. And also that, you know, that you can do this um, through Zoom encounters, through virtual encounters that you don't mm -hmm. have to, which is obviously in a place like Los Angeles, always a big limitation. You know, are, are people able and willing to, to, to drive an hour and be stuck in traffic, you know, and then, th then do a meditative practice when you're stressed out from having gone through. So this is really open up, I would say this, this whole virtual office situation has opened up a, a whole range of new opportunities for for the kind of uh, holistic approach that you are, you know, that you are practicing and you are promoting. Yeah, I I do think it really. You're right. It it helps them to be at home, and to be able to do a practice. And sometimes, you know, at the end of a session, they're at a spot where they're really in touch with some compassion for themselves and what's going on. And so I just encourage them, like, just, you know, close the screen. Do you have 20, 30 minutes still? And they do. So they can just slide right into staying in that state instead of kind of turning on and turning off and driving through LA traffic and, and all of that. And I just, I think the mindfulness practices of being able to sense their reactions to things in the environment and also to notice how they feel when they're on different types of diets it's so key for the the mental health piece it really it really is if they don't know what's making them anxious or sad or depressed it can take a long time to figure out which which type of therapy is going to be the best how do we fix this and so you know, by teaching even some basic relaxation and some basic mindfulness, it can be a real game changer for people. So let me switch to to a, to a question that um, that addresses a topic that I've heard a lot about recently, both in the media uh, and 
in scientific literature, uh, also from some patients. And this has to do with this, and you know, the Netflix series about how to change your mind, obviously, mm -hmm. it's had a lot of impact. <clears throat> so what is your view as a, as a holistic psychiatrist uh, who incorporates a lot of atypical or non-traditional elements into her practice? Uh, what is your view of this concept of um, psychedelic enhanced um, psychotherapy or therapy in general? Yeah, so I'm a little biased. Just this spring, I completed a year-long training program with the California Institute for Integral Studies in their Certificate for Psychedelic Assisted Therapy and Research. So it tells you I've already I've already dove in pretty deep into the topic area. And, you know, I really do think that MDMA-assisted therapy is going to have a big role for PTSD treatment for both individuals and couples. That was that was what drew me to doing that training program. And my hope is that it's going to be access very accessible, especially to veterans and first responders who may benefit from the therapy. Um, but yeah, there's challenges. I mean, the logistics of how to provide this care in different settings, and also how do we work out the cost? I mean, you've got session days with the medicine of seven to eight hours, and the protocol is set up for three of those a month apart. But then you've also got prep sessions before and integration sessions after. So it's an enormous amount of staffing time. And, you know, I just think with making sure that the emotional safety is there for patients um, since they're having the treatment because they've had trauma. So we really have to figure out how to do it right. Do you think there's a danger? Um, I mean, it would seem to me and I've heard this from, from, from several people active in this field that what, what the medication does, it sort of opens up things in your mind, in your uh, you know, uh, emotional memories that you didn't have access to before. But then the real work has to come from integrating these, this open mm -hmm. up um, you know, Pandora's box, I mean, to integrate the pieces. Doesn't this require like really well-trained, experienced, uh, therapists that can that can actually do this effectively. I think it does. It, I think it takes therapists who are trauma informed. And you know, I had the unfortunate situation where I had a few patients that read about MDMA and you know went out and did it on their own, um, and had a whole bunch of stuff come up, and they were either alone or with you know a friend or two, and had some really bad experiences of of stuff coming up that they hadn't really remembered and so felt worse because of it. And so, you know, I think that is a big, a big caution, but you look at the data of symptom reduction and it's just, you know, it, it compelled me to go into the training program. It's like, okay, I'm going to have to do this on my own time. I was still at the VA. I'm going to pay for it myself, mm -hmm. but that's how strongly I felt about getting the base. And there there's a lot of us. I mean, it's about 180 per year coming out of CIAS with the certification. And so there's a lot of providers out here like ready to start doing the care and, and also many working on research protocols right now, thankfully. And so, you know, I think, I think we'll learn enough through the research protocols to hopefully roll it out correctly. Do you think this could sort of revolutionize? I mean, psychiatry the 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 development of new of novel effective therapies has really been stagnant to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think these kind of approaches 
um, have the potential to really revolutionize what psychiatry can do in certain for certain disorders? I, I do, I do. And you know, I really think too, um, besides MDMA, the psilocybin protocols for end-of-life anxiety and for anxiety due to life-threatening illness, um, it's such powerful work. And the use of psilocybin for also anxiety and depression is really promising. And so I think, you know, MDMA looks really promising for PTSD and then psilocybin, um, I think is going to have a big impact as well. I mean, the, the data there, imagine, you know, someone in their final stage of life, who's dealing with a lot of anxiety and pain and the loss coming up for their family and everyone else for them to be able to get more peace in that final stage and for their family to see that they're at peace. I mean, what a gift there. We don't, we don't have any psychiatric therapy or medication that can do that at this time. And so I think that's incredibly promising area as well. Yeah. So it makes me really look back and, you know, my own career decision or struggle between psychiatry and, and uh, gastroenterology with these uh, exciting aspects on the horizon. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, I'd love to go back and, and be able to make a, make a choice being part of this revolution. I, I think it's really, it's really exciting. You have so much diverse experience. There's no problem for you stepping, stepping over into <laughs> our camp. <laughs> I think that would be an easy transition for you too. You know, the, the one caution that I will put out is I think that some people are looking at these as being a total revolution. Like this is going to work for everybody in all settings. And I just think it's wise for us to be realistic that they're probably not going to work for everybody in every situation and that they really need to be used in the right setting and with the right support. If, if we're looking for life-changing and not causing harm. And so I do watch, you know, some of the listservs and it's like, oh, this is going to revolutionize. Like there's going to be no more depression and no anxiety and all PTSD is going to be cured. And, and I'm like, hold up, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's slow the enthusiasm just a little bit. Um, so the last thing that I'm going to say or ask you a question. So it's, um, I've always been interested in, uh, in these ancient healing traditions. I'm, mm -hmm. I can't tell you why that is. I mean, even from college times, I've, read about this have gone through many of the you know I've also spent time with the UCLA Zen Center uh, with the Los Angeles Zen Center um, and it's 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 kind of nice to see how these ancient how many principles of ancient healing traditions are are coming back into I, I mean I wouldn't say mainstream medicine I mean there's there's clearly you know there's developments of mainstream medicine that's going off in a in another direction um, like in my specialty, just doing procedures or being be, becoming uh, something very different from the kind of healing or looking at the whole body. But um, I, I think for family practitioners and, and for people that look at um, general health issues, th this is kind of an interesting phenomenon that all of a sudden mm -hmm. it was an outlier. So remembering when I was uh, in training for gastroenterology at UCLA, I would spend my weekends in places like SLN or the Ohio Foundation, probably the only gastroenterology trainee that was present <laughs> at, these, at these esoteric uh, meetings. 
but that has changed. I mean, there's now, you know, wellness groups at like at UCLA, there's at the VA, you said, and mm-hmm. um, this is an interesting trend in general in society that we're sort of reintegrating things that we have not, that we've totally ignored for the last several hundred years, except for a few mm-hmm. outliers, you know. Um, I mean, how do you see this? You certainly practice you know many of these things yourself and you apply it to your patients do you see this also that many of your colleagues will go the same way and um, adopt and integrate some of those approaches and philosophies and and yeah this this is such a fascinating area and I know we've had discussions on this prior uh, the potential seems huge for me in this in this area as well and I feel like I'm just a beginner in my study of these types of areas I've had some deep experiences when I was doing chanting at different chakra levels with a a teacher Um, I've had some experiences of what people refer to as kundalini energy during meditation and during breathwork yoga and so it's like, I've had these glimpses of like, wow, what's this? You know, this is this is something very different than just my usual meditation practices. And I, I have noticed, you know, over the years of meditation that there, there is clearly like these centers of energy in my body, you know, belly center, heart center, head center, like those are a lot of practices, you're you're very aware of being able to move awareness between those and what's kind of happening in those centers. But I feel like I'm a beginner just learning how, how do I open this up and how do I work with this at a basic level? Uh, but I think there's going to be profound interactions with these practices and what's going on in other streams of healing. Um, as we learn more, you know, what's, what is the brain about, you know, how do we work with the energetic component of the different organs in the brain? And so it's, it's really, it's a super exciting area. It's one that draws my interest quite a bit. Yeah. And as we talked about, you know, we definitely have to follow up this conversation with something specifically targeted on this and maybe bring, you know, a third person in uh, an expert on energy healing, mm-hmm. um, because I've also found that fascinating, you know, with the, the whole, um, what goes on in your gut, which has its own nervous system. Um, and I've really focused all my interest on the gut, but then you realize there's also the heart, the compassion, and the, which is right. a different. And, and how have these, these old, these ancient teachings, I mean, how did they come up with these connections? You know, I mean, I mean what, what made anybody think about um, like a meditator that this has to do something with the gut or something with the heart. So that we are coming to this now with the science, but people have noticed, realized that like thousands of years ago. So I, I think mm-hmm. I'd love to have that conversation with you, you know, on, on, on this link between ancient healing traditions and modern science and what this means for, for, for the clinical practice. Yeah, I remember a, a story that, uh, one of my meditation teachers has told over the years, um, Spirit Rock affiliated teacher about when they were doing some research on the monks um, with the Dalai Lama's group and the researchers went over and they were going to do, you know, all the measurements of 
of um, of the brain. And when they walked in and told what they were doing in the translator translated, the monks all like kind of giggled because they thought it was here that they should be looking at. And the fact that they were looking here made no sense to them. So and you know, that's my experience with meditation too, is once once you're really rested, it's like information just comes up and they're it doesn't feel like this is the most logical place to to live life. It, it to me, it feels like you know, wisdom comes out of the gut, compassion, care, and connection comes from the heart, and the mind should just be the one that communicates that into the world, and then, you know, bring some information processing to send it back down. But we really, you know, medicine teaches us that we're everything that we have to offer people is up here, and. I, I think we're I think we're ready for a change, both you and I personally, and how we work with people, um, and you know, medicine in general. That that we drop more into heartfelt and and gut intuition. Yeah, I can't wait for this conversation. So it's definitely on my to do list, and uh, you'll mm -hmm. will be hearing from me about. Yeah, I, I would love can, to participate. Where we can schedule this. So anyway so we've come to the end of this wonderful conversation I, I really enjoyed it you know it could go on for a long time picking your, your 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 brain and your amazing experience and knowledge in this field um do, do you want to make a few closing comments in, in in terms of you know something that we have not touched upon during this conversation sure first of all thank you so much for having me and i'd love to come back for that part too um i think you know one message i want to make sure people really hear is that what they eat can have such a profound impact on how they feel on on mood and anxiety and stress and so to really not underestimate that diet change can be very effective in helping people and also the the use of mindful awareness of tuning into oneself and you know internal feedback and external feedback it it turns someone into like their own detective of what makes me better what makes me feel worse and so i think mindful awareness is such a great tool and in in closing you know i've had the privilege to receive training from so many outstanding physicians and nurses teachers patients and mentors over the last 30 years. And I've been really so lucky to have had the wide range of meditation practices and teachings. It's just been a gift for combining, you know, my own health and practice together. And honestly, you know, at this day and age, I look back at my own experiences with health challenges, especially the mind gut issues that it's really turned out to be a gift. And it's a gift I use to be able to help others. And so, you know, there isn't that like, oh, why me stuff that was floating around mm -hmm. in my 20s? Like, why do I have to have all this stuff? And why, why can't I eat that croissant? And you know, there was there was more whining back in the 20s. And now I look at it and it's like, this is why I can be effective in helping other people. And so it, it really, I'm just so lucky that I had the access to all of the teachings and the teachers and the patients being one of the, the best teachers along the way. Thank you again. You know, I have to say, having met you, you know, about a year ago and in our conversations, uh, this has really been an eye-opener and learned a lot from you that, that I'm incorporating into my own uh, work. And, and I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners will, will really enjoy the, this conversation that we had. And uh, 
points that you addressed. And uh, so thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you. You know, it's been so healing to meet a GI doctor who's so interested in this area and sees it. It just feels like this ultimate validation that it's like, oh, I knew they were connected. And now, you know, to have such a, a high-ranking, accomplished UCLA professor that's like, of course they are. This is the area I'm interested in too. It's just been wonderful, Emran. So thank you for, for having me on today. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye-bye.